America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean. This year, L.L. Bean is joining up with the National Park Foundation, the official nonprofit partner of the National Park Service, to help you find your happy place in an amazing system of more than 400 national parks, including historic and cultural sites, monuments, preserves, lakeshores, and seashores that dot the American landscape, many of which you'll find just a short trip from home. L.L. Bean is proud to be an official partner of the National Park Foundation. Discover your perfect day in a park at findyourpark.com. One of the very symbols of our nation is a residence for our highest elected official, designed by Irish-born architect James Hoban in the neoclassical style. Hoban modeled the building on Leinster House in Dublin, which today houses the Irish legislature. Construction took place between 1792 and 1800 using sandstone, painted white. When Thomas Jefferson moved into the house in 1801, he and architect Benjamin Henry Latrobe added low colonnades on each wing that concealed stables and storage. Not long after, the house for our nation's president would almost be obliterated. Today on America's National Parks, the White House, part of the National Park Service's President's Park in Washington, D.C. With more on the early years of the enduring symbol of the leader of the free world, here's Rosie Tevereau from the National Park Service. When George Washington picked out the swampy territory on the border of Virginia and Maryland to be the location of his new nation's capital, he couldn't have known the trouble it would take to reach the point of even being considered a city. The government had been located in Philadelphia until that point, and in the city was where many wanted to stay. Indeed, by 1800, Washington, D.C. was little more than a village with some large edifices. There were only just over 3,000 citizens living there then, compared to the nearly 40,000 in Philadelphia by 1790, one-fifth of whom were enslaved. Pierre L'Enfant, the original city planner, had grandiose plans that hadn't been fully realized and instead had created an incompetent system of infrastructure. The mess was appalling to foreigners, including visiting dignitaries, who were also repulsed by the behavior of the politicians. It was said that Dolly Madison brought the first sense of sophistication to the city and redeemed the capital to some degree with her festive social events. By 1810, there were about 8,200 people living in the city, nearly 6,000 of whom were white, less than 900 of whom were free blacks, and the rest of whom were enslaved. The city was growing, but it was still insignificant. President James Madison, leader of the country during the War of 1812, had to deal with conflicting advice from his cabinet. John Armstrong, the Secretary of War, refused to believe that the British would have anything to do with D.C. until after the fact, and therefore deliberately refused to take action. To further his point, he made disparaging remarks and attempts to discourage those who did take action. James Monroe, the Secretary of State, wanted to be involved in the action himself. 
He tried to scout the British when they landed in the bay, but forgot his spyglass and so was unable to report back with how many had arrived. It was William Winder, a lawyer with no military experience, who was put in charge of the Washington militia. He was short on men, and the men he did have not only lacked experience, but also lacked money, weapons, and clothes. There was no support from the government because Armstrong couldn't comprehend the possibility of the city being under attack, so Winder was alone on all support fronts to defend the city from the incoming British. The two ill-prepared armies met at Bladensburg, both consisting of starving and exhausted men who had been marching for too long. The Americans had some initial success, shooting several lines of British soldiers, but when the British soldiers kept coming and marching toward them despite it all, the American militia got scared and turned heel. Some men fled without taking a single shot, and many others died from heat exhaustion without a scratch. When Commodore Josh Barney showed up, after having destroyed the ships of his navy so the British couldn't capture them, he was outraged at the reaction of his fellow Americans. He put up such a great fight that when he was finally captured by the British, they praised his bravery. Having successfully pushed past Bladensburg, the British troops proceeded to march toward the capital, where things were in a state of chaos. Ninety percent of the inhabitants fled before the British reached the city, including the president and his cabinet. By the time it was acknowledged that there was a problem, it was too late to take significant action. Citizens took wagons and carts to assist them in their flight and refused to give them up to the government despite the consequences. Because of this, the government was unable to save many of the important documents in the capital. Although a few diligent men managed to rescue some of the necessary papers, such as the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence from within the capital and other buildings, almost everything was left behind. Dolly Madison, the fashionable First Lady, refused to leave the White House until Gilbert Stuart's life-size portrait of George Washington was rescued. Dolly was quoted as saying, Under no circumstances allow it to fall into the hands of the British. Prepared to reach a truce, General Robert Ross and Admiral George Coburn led their troops into a mostly empty city on August 24, 1814. Ross's horse was almost immediately shot out from under him, and all attempts to find the sniper were unsuccessful. According to Martha Custis Peter, George Washington's granddaughter living in Georgetown, the man had been a worthless hairdresser. Other rumors said that it was an unidentified woman who'd shot the gun. Continuing on into the capital, the British were surprised by the splendor of the buildings. Many soldiers were loath to destroy these magnificent edifices, and stood in awe of the soaring ceilings in the capital and the elegant decorations in and on all the buildings. However, orders were orders, and after eating the extravagant lunch that had been set in the White House before the exodus, everything flammable was gathered into piles to build up the fires. While the vaulted ceilings in the White House protected some areas from the fires, the flames were hot enough to melt glass, and the light from the burning city was supposedly bright enough for spectators on the surrounding hills to read by. The British were very careful, however, to burn only public buildings and to leave private homes and individuals alone. When they caught their own soldiers looting, they punished them severely, and they made a general policy of paying for the goods they took from people. After watching the city burn for two days, the British moved on secretly, leaving a false trail to be sure they weren't followed. They moved their way up towards Baltimore, hoping for more great victories, but instead faced trouble on the river. Fort Warburton, currently known as Fort Washington, had been easily defeated because the Americans had left without firing a shot. However, the British faced more trouble at Fort McHenry. Even after the bombardment on September 13th that continued well into the night, the 30-foot by 42-foot American flag that Major George Armistead 
had asked Mary Pickersgill to make was still waving over the fort, prompting onlooker Francis Scott Key to pen this star-spangled banner. Back in D.C., citizens and politicians alike were returning to a scene of desolation. The Madisons stayed for about a year in the Octagon House, where James Madison signed the Treaty of Ghent, and they never moved back into the White House. There were debates about returning the capital to Philadelphia instead of trying to rebuild, but it was decided that if the capital was set on wheels, it would never stop moving. So Washington was rebuilt, slowly but surely, and continued to grow into what you see today. Burn marks are still visible on the White House today. Reconstruction began almost immediately, and President James Monroe moved into the partially reconstructed executive residence, its original name, in October of 1817. Exterior construction continued with the addition of the semicircular South Portico in 1824 and the North Portico in 1829. As the presidency modernized, the White House was nearly always too small for its function. Overcrowding led President Theodore Roosevelt to have all work offices relocated to the newly constructed West Wing in 1901. Eight years later, in 1909, President William Howard Taft expanded the West Wing and created the first Oval Office, which was eventually moved as the section was expanded. In the main mansion, the third floor attic was converted to living quarters in 1927 by augmenting the existing hip roof with long shed dormers. A newly constructed East Wing was used as a reception area for social events. Jefferson's colonnades connected the new wings. By 1948, the residence's load-bearing exterior walls and internal wood beams were found to be close to failure. Under Harry S. Truman, the interior rooms were completely dismantled and a new internal load-bearing steel frame constructed inside the walls. Once this work was completed, the interior rooms were rebuilt entirely. The modern-day White House complex includes the Executive Residence, the West Wing, the East Wing, the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, which houses offices for the President's staff and the Vice President, and Blair House, a guest residence. The Executive Residence is made up of six stories, the ground floor, the state floor, the second floor, and the third floor, as well as a two-story basement. The property is a National Heritage Site, owned by the National Park Service as part of the President's Park. If you wish to visit the White House, there are some things you need to know. First off, you can't get very close on the outside. The South Lawn can be viewed from a walkway along the fence, a good football field away from the actual building. Pennsylvania Avenue on the north side of the building is generally shut down to vehicle and pedestrian traffic. The National Park Service does not schedule White House tours or provide tickets to enter the White House. Public tour requests must be submitted through your member of Congress. These self-guided tours are generally available Tuesday through Saturday, excluding federal holidays or other blackout dates. Tours are scheduled on a first-come, first-served basis. Requests can be submitted up to three months in advance, but no less than 21 days in advance. 
you're encouraged to submit your request as early as possible as a limited number of spaces are available. The White House tour is free of charge, but also subject to last minute cancellation. The new White House Visitor Center is a couple blocks away to the southeast. Here you'll find an accessible building with approximately 100 historical artifacts, interpretive panels, looping videos of photos and archival footage, and interactive elements for visitors of all ages. Even though this building is not on the White House campus, a security screening is required to enter, similar to that of an airport. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our new America's National Parks Facebook group. We'll link to all of our social media, as well as National Park Service resources, music credits, and more in the show notes at nationalparkpodcast.com. If you're interested in RV travel, give us a listen over at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and I as we travel the country in our converted school bus with our three boys at OurWanderingFamily.com. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. Today's show was sponsored by LL Bean. Follow the hashtag be an outsider and visit llbean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.